Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on December 2nd, 2020, honoring the work of Eugenia Lean, a professor of Chinese history at Columbia University. Professor Lean studies the history of China in the 20th century and has written about gender, the role of affect or sentiment in political life, and the history of science and technology. In 2020, she published Vernacular Industrialism in China, Local Innovation and Translated Technologies in the Making of a Cosmetics Empire, 1900 to 1940. Professor Lin's book is a case study of a single man named Chen Dieshen, a professional writer, amateur scientist, and cosmetics entrepreneur in early 20th century China. By studying Chen's career, Professor Lin challenges standard histories of modern industrialization which treat China as late to adopt Western science and the technologies of mass production. Vernacular industrialism is Professor Lean's term for the do-it-yourself approach to science and technology exemplified by people like Chen, who pursued industrial innovation by means of traditional Chinese literary education and culture. By studying what Professor Lean calls the educated tinkering of people like Chen, we can expand our understanding of the process of industrialization itself. First, we will hear Professor Lean talk more about her goals in studying Chen's life and career in her book. Then, we will hear a response from Deborah Cohen, a professor of the history of science and medicine at Yale University. Okay, so vernacular industrialism in China focuses on the maverick figure of Chen Diexian, a man of letters, a professional writer, and eventually a cosmetics magnate. Uh, Chen lived during the last decade, uh, decades of the Qing dynasty into the Republican era. It was a period marked by weak central states, internecine warfare, and penetrative economic imperialism. Yet, while political chaos reigned, the rise of treaty port economies and print and light manufacturing industries generated unexpected opportunities because the fall of empire had unmoored orthodox categories and professional boundaries and occupational divides had not yet been established, enterprising individuals could pursue new endeavors, explore forms of knowledge before they were exclusively owned by specialists in academia or industry. It was in this context that Chen proved to be one such enterprising individual. In the West, Chen is probably best known uh, as Tian Xu Wosheng, a novelist of Mandarin duck and butterfly romance fiction. But Chen did more than write novels. In the late 1890s, this classically educated Hangzhou man developed an interest in chemistry. After moving to Shanghai in 1912, he began work as a professional editor and translator. In 1918, building on his scientific knowledge and brand name recognition as author and editor, he plowed the money he had made from writing into daily goods and cosmetics into a daily goods and cosmetics company known as the Association for Household Industries. The company manufactured the Butterfly brand tooth powder, which was unique in its ability to double as face powder. The tooth powder became incredibly popular and outmaneuvered Japanese and Western brands in 
in Chinese and Southeast Asian markets. By the mid-1920s, now a patriotic captain of industry, Chen became a leading architect of China's national product movement. The book challenges the conventional view that lettered men and women such as Chen were unable to manage the transition to modernity. It shows that supposedly outdated literary endeavors of these individuals were in fact crucial to their scientific, commercial, and manufacturing success. As a playful literati connoisseur of new knowledge, the young Chen dabbled in science. He turned his writer's studio into a chemistry lab and prolifically translated texts on chemical and legal knowledge. But Chen also moved beyond the realm of gentlemanly culture to sell both words and things. He adapted foreign technologies, locally sourced ingredients, and openly pursued profit, activities once deemed unthinkable for respectable men. He wittily drew from literati naming culture to market his modern native goods uh, butterfly brand uh, in order to sell his tooth powder. In turn, drew, Chin drew on his fame as a manufacturer to share his adapted formulas as common knowledge or changshi on xiaogongyi, uh, light industrial arts in uh, journals, magazines, as well as in newspapers. In a moment when Ch Chinese industry was struggling with economic imperialism, Chen's industrious activities constituted a form of vernacular industrialism. This industrialism was local, informal, and part of China's consumer culture. It was showcased as modest and family run, if eventually located in factories. Vernacular industrialism is a key analytical concept in my work and is meant to capture the array of ad hoc unconventional industry work that Chen and others pursued. These practices have tended not to be included in histories of modern industry, or if they are, they're dismissed as amateur, frivolous, seemingly falling outside of real industrial pursuits. Yet Chen's industrial efforts included writing poetry about new technologies, which served to domesticate translated chemistry and physical knowledge to skeptical literati peers. It involved tinkering with cuttlefish to source locally calcium carbonate, a key cosmetic ingredient. There was also playful dabbling with the foam fire extinguisher, extinguisher in his scholar's studio, for which he eventually secured a patent. More broadly, the term is meant to capture how Chen's unconventional route to industry was characterized by a do-it-yourself or even rogue approach. Initially, this DIY approach was necessary in an era when conditions were inhospitable to industry building. Eventually, however, it became an integral part of Chen's nativist brand. Vernacular industrialism is thus meant to decenter long-standing narratives about China's engagement in science, industry, and capitalism. Chen and other classically trained individuals were hardly mired in the Confucian classics, unable to transition to modernity. They were in fact highly able to leverage the resources and skills acquired from the world of letters to embrace new knowledge and create new roles for themselves in what was increasingly a globally integrated industrial and commercial world of urban China. Vernacular industri industrialism also serves to interrogate the role of knowledge production in the making of industry. During a period when the production of things and words were increasingly defined by technologies of mass production. Chen's vernacular industrialism was marked by a close interrelationship between his knowledge work and material endeavors. 
Chin deployed his translation skills and clout as a professional editor to produce the knowledge necessary for manufacturing for an anonymous reading public. As a self-proclaimed nativist not able to read a single foreign language, Chen nonetheless tapped into global networks of knowledge by employing practices of so-called assembly line style team translation. To capture the important relationship between Chen's intellectual and industrial labor, I employ the word tinkering. Chen was a wordsmith. He tinkered with texts. He remade formulaic romance novels. He compiled, edited, and translated in a new media market. Chen's nimble improvisation with texts informed his material pursuits. He adapted translated recipes, he tinkered with the manufacturing formulas, and then he improved the product by domestically producing it at a cheaper rate. Tinkering brings me to another intervention the book seeks to make on the question of copying and innovation. Claiming to build a Chinese industry that was native, Chen presented his adaptations of translated technologies as virtuous acts of indigenous emulation, fangzhi, or acts of remaking, gaizao. In an era when modern IP was only starting to emerge globally, Chen's publications on so-called common knowledge, or changshi, unabashedly included translated brand recipes from abroad. Yet even while exhorting other would-be manufacturers to emulate foreign manufacturing technologies, Chen aggressively sought patents for his own gadgets. Uh, in these, he based his claims of ownership not on original invention, but on improvement or gaiyang. His strategic engagement with copying were hardly examples of ignorance or deviousness. Instead, it demonstrates how in an era when ideas of ownership over IP were not yet fixed, copying, improvement, and innovation were hardly at odds. This was a time of information, informational and material scarcity in China. Scientific knowledge was not yet ensconced in academia, nor was industrial production in fully mechanized factories. Figures like Chin were active participants in defining the parameters of science and industry and capitalist practices. Not the highbrow May 4th Mr. Science nor state-led industry that was to emerge under the Kuomintang and dominate under the CCP, Chin's vernacular industrial, industrialism was ad hoc, commercial, playful, even explicitly gendered feminine. It was branded as no nativist and local, but depended on his ability to access global circuits of knowledge and technology. If we insist on using formal industrial practices as a standard to evaluate successful industrialization, Chin's vernacular industrial practices would be excluded, but it is precisely the purported unconventionality of Chin's practices that are worth our attention. They for us, force us to re-examine our current categories of analysis that have for so long rendered his form of industrial vernacularity as non-normative. Next, we will hear a response from Deborah Cohen, a professor of the history of science and medicine at Yale University. Professor Cohen explains how vernacular industrialism contributes to ongoing conversations in the history of science. She also describes the exciting parallels she sees between Professor Lean's book and her own study of scientific culture in East Central Europe during the same time period. Professor Cohen discusses the way that Professor Lean's concept of vernacular industrialism subverts the myth of the genius inventor and complicates our definition of modernity itself. She also asks Professor Lean about the role that Chen's family played in his work. 
Afterward, we will hear Professor Lean respond to this question and talk more about transliterary writing, as well as the importance of the idea of tinkering to her own research. At the end, Professor Lean responds to a question about whether she herself has experimented with any of Chen's cosmetics recipes that she includes in her book. Thank you, Eugenia. This is a brilliant book. I'm truly honored to have been invited to discuss it. Um, I'll comment on its implications as I see them for my own field of history of science and technology. First, for rethinking the category of modernity, and second, for moving beyond histories of invention. So first on modernity, which I take to be an aspirational condition, an actor's category. So over the past 10 years or so, I think a consensus has emerged among historians of science and technology that modernity was defined by a series of binary oppositions that privileged one form of knowledge over another. So the primacy of science over technology, of theory over practice, of generalizations over particulars, of representation over intervention. So in this respect, historians of science have distinguished modernity from post-modernity in terms of the shift from science to technoscience, from a representational ideal of truth and a quest for causal explanations to an interventionist ideal of efficacy and a search for large-scale patterns that may not admit of causal explanation. But this framework that we've built up <laughs> so carefully um, over a decade or so can't make sense of Chen, right? A self-proclaimed modernizer who seems to better fit the so-called postmodern mold. So Eugenia's story shows us a modernity that inverts these familiar hierarchies or at least undermines the binaries. Chen offered his readers a modern identity premised on practical over theoretical engagement. And he didn't distinguish between the verification of a process and the verification of an explanatory theory. We don't hear from him any of the binary oppositions that we expect from modernists. Why not, right? So Eugenia argues that defining modernity for Chen was at least ostensibly about dismantling hierarchies and social divisions because becoming modern was for him first and foremost, a project of nation building which of course requires alliances across differences of class and gender. Now, I found that this resonates with my own geographical research area, 19th and early 20th century East Central Europe, where science was likewise integral to the work of nation building for cultural nations governed by the Habsburg monarchy. So writers in Czech, Hungarian, Polish, and other regional languages were inventing new national vernaculars that could serve as scientific languages in an era when the global dominance of English was not foreordained. As in China, in East Central Europe, inventing a scientific language was a literary endeavor. So like Chen, East Central European authors viewed scientific translation as a creative act since they understood themselves to be inventing a national language. Early scientific periodicals in East Central Europe in languages other than German contained an eclectic mix of topics, just like Chen's newspaper columns. Chen's ideal of common knowledge also resonates strongly in this essential European context. There too, authors attempted to engage readers in hands-on scientific activities, usually observation or collecting as a means of nation building. But beyond such regional comparisons, we might also say following Eugenia that textual practices need to be seen more generally as an important part of the work of technological creativity. 
And here I point to recent research on 18th century France uh, by my Yale colleague, Paola Bertucci. Um, her artisanal enlightenment is a history of the emergence of the 18th century persona of the artiste, who was neither a craftsman nor savant, um, an identity tied to textual practices like writing histories of craftsmanship and compiling contemporary artisanal knowledge. This attention to the affinities of technological and textual knowledge making, I think helps to provincialize yet another myth in the history of science, that of the two cultures, uh, a neurosis over the relative status of the natural sciences and the humanities that has appeared repeatedly in Anglo-American culture since the late 19th century and that has parallels in contemporaneous German language anxiety over the split between the Geisteswissenschaft and the Naturwissenschaft. So can we say that in both China and East Central Europe, the work of nation building mitigated against such a rhetorical emphasis on disciplinary divides? I think in this way, Eugenia's research also reflects back on histories of science and technology in Western Europe in important ways. It exposes the social function of the standard glossing of modernity with its hierarchical divisions between different modes of knowledge. So thanks to her case study, we can better recognize how Western European definitions of modernity served a class, gender, and imperial politics that pri prioritized a hierarchical epistemology and its associated ideology of meritocracy. And here I think the implications for gender history are especially interesting. Chen seems to have avoided the 19th century European hierarchy of knowledge that tended to link more theoretical, abstract, universal forms with masculine minds and more contextual, practical forms with feminine minds. Unlike European intellectuals at the time, it seems he did not suggest that women were better at following rules than coming up with their own. Also by encouraging the work of tinkering in the home, the inner chamber, Chen also seems to have subverted or disregarded the Western European modernist association of science with public rather than private, i.e. feminized space. And then with his dual authorial identity as science writer and writer of romantic melodramas, he seems to have ignored the Western European modernist move to divorce science from affect. So given these moves to link private space and public science, rationality and emotion, I found myself wanting to know a little more about Chen's family life specifically about the significance of family relations for his creative work and for his business. Um, and these reflections on Chen's vision of modernity lead me to a larger question. Chen makes it seem that these boundaries didn't exist in our Republican China. And yet, um, I believe that other historians of science in Republican China have suggested otherwise. Um, so for instance, um, emphasizing rhetoric um, on the opposition between science and literature, between science and metaphysics. So I'm wondering, was Chen exceptional in his boundary crossing or has previous literature had a Eurocentric bias, right? seeing oppositions only because it expected to find them based on a Western European model? Um, so second, I think vernacular industrialism is an important contribution in to history of science and technology in that it shifts the focus from histories of invention to histories of use, appropriation, adaptation. So in doing so, it subverts a central myth of Eurocentric histories of science and technology, indeed histories that have been used to legitimate colonialism, the myth of the genius inventor who bends the non-human world to his design. Chen saw through that myth, 
He perceptively associated the value placed on invention and novelty in the West with market consumption. It's interesting that it was during his lifetime that Marxist intellectuals in Eastern Europe, like Boris Hessen and Edgar Zilzel, likewise began to link the birth of modern science to the rise of capitalism. And in Zilzel's case, to denounce the myth of genius, a myth that he argued hid how much modern science owed to the ingenuity of the working classes. But Eugenia's research not only shifts the attention of historians of technology away from invention, it also pokes an important hole in some of the classic critiques of the myth of genius, critiques um, that simply point to the failures of engineers to achieve their goals. So she goes further to question the premise that science and, and engineering are all about forcing matter to conform to human intentions. Right? So with Chen as her case study, she suggests that the real knowledge work of engineering lies not in imposing designs uniformly, but rather in improvising and adapting to local conditions. And in this respect, I hope that the book will be read by historians of science and technology working within the framework of envirotech, which emphasizes the agency of matter and non-human life. So scholars like Linda Nash and Paul Sutter argue that it's highly misleading to talk about technology transfer or diffusion when not only socioeconomic and cultural conditions, the material environment itself demands improvisation. So Nash emphasizes the agency of matter in the negotiation between engineers and their environments. And she writes, perhaps then it is not technology that travels, but travel that helps constitute what we understand as technology, right? So if we think of technology in terms of solutions that work in multiple sites, and we overstate human agency at the expense of the agency of matter. So from an envirotech perspective, vernacular industrialism offers a fascinating example of an engineer who seems to have recognized the limits of his own agency vis-a-vis matter. But I wonder how Eugenie would feel about this reading about attributing agency to matter. To conclude, I just want to point out that no one else in the world could have written this wonderful book, which uniquely combines Eugenia's expertise in Chinese cultural history, her sensitive readings of literary sources and cultural artifacts, and her understanding of the methods and concerns of history of science and technology. Um, so Eugenia, I hope you know how much I admire you for taking up a whole new discipline in order to write this book, a daring move that has paid off beautifully. And I hope that your example will be one that others will follow. And in that light, I would love to hear from you at some point, not necessarily here, about your experiences moving into history of science and technology and think with you about how history of science and technology can become more open and welcoming to scholars coming from other backgrounds in the future. Debbie brought up the issue of family life and uh, in relation to the issue of science and affect, one of the sort of themes that I, I do pursue in, in the book. Chen Xian himself actually presents himself as a, as a man of feeling who writes romance novels um, and indeed uh, uses this almost as a shield to pursue profit, right? As a sentimental man, that, that genuineness, the authentic sentiment that he writes and pours into his novels, uh, that's virtue actually in the Chinese context, right? I mean, that, that kind of qing, that in, in Chinese, this goes back to my earlier work, but that notion of being kind of an, uh, genuinely expressive, right? Um, it was actually very crucial for him to uh, fend off critics uh, that uh, identif identified him as a pen for hire. You know, May 4th, like what kind of, how do you, what register is this labor? The intellectual labor that he was engaging in was highly commercialized. The sentimental novels were, they were like, you know, melodramatic, you know, 
they sold like hotcakes, right? I mean, this is not lofty stuff and sort of middle, very middle brow, right? The sort of May 4th intellectuals look askance at Mandarin Duck and Butterfly fiction, right? This was stuff that you did as retrograde, right? Um, and instead you should do much loftier uh, vernac you know, vernacular in, in, in terms of Baihua, May 4th vernacular, uh, serious novel writing, right? Chen Jiexian, both his novel writing and the way he presented his science was exceedingly commercial. It was, and, and because he was selling both his novels and his publications on science and selling the knowledge about science, uh, would write in kind of a, a sort of classified, uh, commercialized classical Chinese, and it was dripping in sentimentality. Um, so the sentiment was actually very crucial for him to navigate commercial work and, and capitalism, uh, be, precisely because, you know, profit had, you know, traditionally been sort of deemed as very uh, unnecessary or not, it's like, you know, getting, getting one literati's hands dirty, right? Um, so, so the science and affect question is actually a pretty, that's actually how I initially got into him because my previous work was on, on affect. Um, and uh, Chin's family life uh, is kind of, in the background uh, with this. And I think perhaps that's that family life issue is probably less related to the affect per se. I mean, I think that there he's tapping into kind of ongoing literati culture, uh, but family life was actually very important for labor issues. So initially when it was a small company, his the labor, he used family labor. He had a translation bureau that uh, he would use his 12 and 13 year old son and daughter to act as scribes, right? This is a translate, he himself didn't speak any English. So he had one friend who knew all these languages and who would take Sherlock Holmes, you know, in, uh, in English or take, uh, you know, this German tract on um, legal philosophy. And then he would just read it out loud. And then his children would act as scribes, translating what he, um, the colleague was reading out loud in vernacular in, in, in spoken Chinese into a classical script. And Chen was the last guy on this assembly line and would take the final text and then add his comments. And this was translation with intent. He had actually a term. Uh, it was intentional intervention in the act of translation. He did that with his knowledge work through and through. So, um, but the, that, that does bring the issue of labor, right? In, in this small scale, uh, and he did similarly when he was making the tooth powder because that was very easy assembly, right? So he, he used family and he would never give them credit, right? Chen Dexian was the face, he was the brand. His wife did a lot of the translation work. She never got the credit. So a lot of hidden labor. And similarly, uh, you know, when they did scale up to large factories, right? By the end, he had like 15 some factories, uh, 400 um, people working for him and uh, majority women. So he wrote a lot. Uh, so I did not read everything that he wrote. Um, I actually only focused on one of his um, more famous novels, uh, which is in English, it's translated uh, as uh, Money Demon. Uh, and in that, um, it's not so much products that he featured. I actually read that novel to explore how he and his peers uh, and his readers um, dealt with the issue of profit. Um, so the money demon is somewhat semi-autobiographical and it's about a man struck uh, or sort of befuddled by multiple love interests and the, but his real uh, love of his life um, he can't quite marry and uh, because he doesn't have enough money and she doesn't have enough money and and so their true love can't be pursued and so um um, you know, so so it's it's a, it's a novel about the anxiety of money that this generation was dealing with. Um, so I, I do that read there, but I also look at some of his early poetry writings. Um, they're known as bamboo branch poetry, uh, and in that he uh, explores um, 
he writes this as an early uh, in, when, in his days in Hangzhou, where he's exploring um, different kinds of technologies that dot the Hangzhou landscape. Um, this included uh, a uh, photography, like um, it included uh, rubber wheel tires uh, on new forms of carriages. Um, it included um, uh, the factory mill where women would um, kind of stream out uh, at five o'clock on the dot, right? So new female labor. And, and that particular poem was so fascinating because it really resonated with uh, Lumiere's film uh, that also featured, it was one of the first motion picture films uh, that featured women coming out of French factories. Um, it was uncannily uh, similar. So my guess is that Chen Dixian knew about that film uh, and appropriated uh, that narrative into uh, a very short, uh, bamboo branch poem. Um, so, so literature definitely allowed him to explore and domesticate foreign technologies uh, for both himself and his readers. Uh, yeah, the tinkering concept was just really uh, uh, a way for me to challenge notions of radical invention, quantum leaps in technology as being the basis of, you know, discovery um, and, and being something that was very unique in the making of the Industrial Revolution. I really wanted to get away from that narrative uh, and instead think much more complexly about what, you know, might I say was is quite universal in processes of making that it involves a lot of these kind of micro um, changes here, changes there. Um, I would say also in textual work, uh, certainly for Chen Jiaxian, for myself, when I, when I edit this book, boy, there was a lot of tinkering involved. Um, but uh, I do think uh, that it is um, a very useful category. Uh, and I purposefully wanted to, you know, I, I, when I presented this once at a humanity center conversation in UT Austin, a woman who does British literature was also loved the idea because tinkers come from, you think about Irish tinkerers, right? They're people who are itinerant um, menders of pots and they would uh, mend the pots, not necessarily in a particularly successful way. Like the, the, the mended pot would oftentimes not be that much uh, improved, right? It was meant to really just kind of, um, and it's, it's, it's a trope that has been, um, you know, quite negative in, in Irish literature. These are oftentimes almost gypsy-like itinerant menders. Um, and uh, she, she, she thought that this was kind of a wonderful kind of reversal of this trope to put it in this context where you can uh, uh, not dismiss this idea of tinkering as something um, incomplete, uh, not as uh, uh, effective as, you know, invention anew or invention ex nihilo. So I actually, precisely because it was sort of seen as desultory repair, not effect, not, not invention, that I liked the concept. Um, and it becomes useful in the sense of when you think about uh, sort of scarce, you know, conditions of scarcity, mm -hmm. um, it almost becomes a default kind of approach that you need you need in order to, to, to remain competitive or become competitive, right? And so I think periods of communism as well, that, that this was very much uh, the case. You know, the communist moment is different from the early 20th century moment in the Chinese context. Um, the Great Leap Forward was a period of heavy industry was actually um, the thing that was being privileged uh, by the state and all resources were being poured into it as opposed to this kind of small scale light manufacturing work. Um, and indeed, it was a radical experimentation to get uh, the masses involved in tinkering and in, in, in their production of making steel pots, right? So it was a, the politics of it were utterly different than what I see in uh, my Chen case. And I think that's what's important is really kind of thinking about the political economic context to understand these acts of tinkering. They could be quite different. 
So I have actually tried a, a couple of the more modest ones um, with like rose petals to kind of try to make soap, but it's actually really hard because a lot of the recipes don't have, the ones that I was looking at, they don't have quantities, um, which was really fascinating. They didn't kind of, so maybe there was a whole different genre of kind of recipe making where people just kind of felt their way through it. I, you know, I needed the exact amount to figure out. Some did, but um, some didn't. Uh, the one that I was trying didn't. So my, my experiment actually ended in disaster. Uh, but I did actually, uh, funnily enough, the cover of my book, that is actually a container from the 1930s that held Chen Xian's tooth powder. And I found it online at an old bazaars, you know, it's a collector's website um, where uh, they sold antique items. And uh, I was able to get my hand on on the uh, tooth powder case. And when I got it from China, I opened it up and there was tooth powder in it. Um, and so I brought it to a chemist to have uh, him identify uh, the ingredients and I compared it to the recipe of Chen Xian's, and lo and behold, it was exactly Exactly right. So, um, so, so I was able to. Uh, uh, so he he didn't. You know, he 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 was into the art of deception, but apparently his tooth powder was actually pretty accurate according to his recipe. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Eugenia Lean's vernacular industrialism. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Matthew Hart's Extraterritorial, a political geography of contemporary fiction. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.